Father, uh, this morning as we gather on again another wintry morning in Iowa, which is no surprise, we give you thanks and praise and for your presence with us. And I just want to pray this morning, Father, for some of our church family. I know uh, that several have been struggling with uh, sickness and illness, and I pray, um, not for everybody individually, but for the, the group of us who have, have been struggling and maybe uh, now recovering and some maybe still uh, getting sick, that you would give grace and strength and courage. We pray you'd touch their bodies and bring healing. I think specifically this morning of uh, Karen McFadden and Mary Bristow and Liz Westfall, who I know have had different procedures and surgeries, and I pray that you would bring healing and strength to their bodies. I pray for so many of our church family that we haven't seen, that I know are, are at home uh, trying to stay safe, and I pray that you'd give them grace and encouragement. And for so many, Lord, who are feeling isolated and insulated and separated from uh, people that they care about and love, I, I just pray that you would comfort and encourage them in a real and tangible way. And I ask now, Father, that as we uh, delve into your word, that as we worship you through the study of your word, that you'd open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful truths from your law. I pray for myself and for each of us that these would not just be words on a page, but that they would come to life as your spirit illumines our eyes, that we might see what you want us to see, and that our lives might be changed by your grace. And for your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I was engaged in a social media dialogue with uh, someone regarding a political and religious, uh, politically and religiously charged topic. I'll just put it that way. In other words, it was a, it's a hot issue uh, to debate with somebody on uh, any kind of in person or especially on social media. And, you know, it's kind of like emailing back and forth. It's kind of like a, you don't get the inf inflections of the, the voice and all that kind of stuff. But anyhow, it became readily apparent uh, that this person had their mind made up. And I would say that uh, they were suffering full from what we might call, I have my mind made up, don't confuse me with the facts syndrome. You know. Now, I would confess I had my mind made up too, okay, uh, but of course I thought I was looking at the facts and they weren't. And what I experienced in my little interaction in that social media encounter is somewhat similar to what Jesus encountered as we go to the text today in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 30, because Jesus also encountered those who had their minds made up about him, about who he was and about what he was about, and they didn't want to be confused with the facts. As we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, we've been seeing that Jesus has repeatedly demonstrated and declared his authority, and he's revealed his identity as the Messiah, the King of Israel, and the Lord of, of the nations. But in doing that, a skepticism has crept in, and that skepticism has given birth to criticism, and that Criticism has blossomed into antagonism, open antagonism. And we, we left last week in chapter 12 of Matthew with verse 14, which, or verse 14, which says this, but the, the Pharisees, I'm sorry, a couple weeks ago, not last week, a couple weeks ago, but the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as how they might destroy him. 
And then he went out, he left there, and he went out and he was ministering to the people and he was fulfilling the prophet's declaration that he was God's servant. And as he did that, the people were like a little bit confused and, and, and a little bit curious as to who this guy might be. And their, their curiosity and their confusion about who Jesus was and wanting to know was set in, is set in stark contrast to the antagonism of and hostility, increasing hostility of the religious establishment. And so as we come to Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 30, the opposition to Jesus is coming to a head. And as it comes to a head, Jesus is doing a miracle, and the miracle is attributed to him by these religious leaders as coming from Satan. So that's kind of what's happening. And so as we look at Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to read the text, I'm going to read the text, Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 30, Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees kind of unfolds for us in in three different stages that are intended to prove his identity And not only prove his identity, but propel us to accept and to prevent us from rejecting who he really is. So I'm going to ask you to do something that we haven't done for a long time here. But if you have your Bible or your device, I want you to stand up as I I read the Word of God, okay? They used to do this in the Old Testament. They did it all morning, okay? We're just going to do it for a few verses, okay? So just humor me if you would. Uh, If you're at home, uh, yeah, stand up and, uh, and participate just like everybody else. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 30. Now this is out of deference to God, okay? We rise and stand out of our deference to Him. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 and following. Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So we see in the text that there are these unfolding stages of Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees. And the first one is this, that our Lord reveals his power over the enemy. Now, mind you, he's going to be accused of being a surrogate of the enemy, or actually the enemy himself. But he's revealing his power over the enemy. The very first word in uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, is then. Sometime after Jesus had retreated to the sea, which takes us back, if you look at Matthew chapter 12, up to chapter 12, verse 15. But 
aware of this, Jesus withdrew. The cross-reference is Mark chapter 3, verse 7, because in Mark chapter 3, verse 7, the parallel passage, it says that Jesus withdrew to the sea, and he started to teach the multitudes, and, the, the, and then he was fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah that we looked at uh, last week, okay? But when he was there, a demon-possessed man, the text says, was brought to him, and he was blind and dumb. This guy was, he was a, a spiritual and physical train wreck. I mean, he was demon-possessed, and he couldn't see, and he couldn't speak. And then the text just says he healed him. I, sometimes I get excited in the, in, the, in the Bible when I read it, you know, just stuff that says, like, if later on when we get to this, Matthew just says he was crucified. Like, and, you know, and then we have to unpack, what does all that mean? So it just said, he healed him, okay? With the result that the, the dumb man spoke and he saw. So he, he was spiritually healed, the demon was gone, and he was physically healed so that he was able to see and speak. A remarkable demonstration of Jesus' power over the enemy, over Satan. Some of you will know uh, this guy that I'm going to have put up on the screen. His name is Michael Phelps, okay? Michael Phelps, according to Wikipedia, okay, this is the authoritative voice of Wikipedia, is the most successful and most decorated Olympian of all time. He has more Olympic medals than any other human being ever, okay? 28 Olympic medals. He also holds the all-time record for the Olympic, the most Olympic gold medals, 23. He has 23 Olympic gold medals. He has the most Olympic gold medals in, in, individual, in individual events, 13. He has the most Olympic medals in, in, he has the most Olympic gold medals in individual events, and he has the most Olympic medals in individual events. Gold medals, 13 in individual events, and Medals, period, 16. I mean, it's remarkable. It's, it's amazing that he has done this. Astounding accomplishment, but nothing compared to what Jesus did. What he did was humanly possible, obviously, because he's a human and he did it. What Jesus did is inhumanly possible. It's only divinely possible what Jesus did. You see, our Lord's ability to immediately, immediately and completely bring, heal this man of his spiritual and of his physical maladies is a, is a testimony to his absolute power over the enemy who has control over sin and all of its consequences, which would be demons, disease, and ultimately death. But Jesus has the power to liberate us and every human being from all that Satan has the power to do. He has the power to liberate us from disease, from death, from disability, and from any kind of discomfort. He's able to do that. He, he demonstrates it here. He can deliver us. Um, the fact that uh, Jesus delivers us from the consequence of the ultimate ramification of sin which is death, is evident. And I'm just going to ask you to um, not look. At, I'm going to ask you to look to it. Hebrews chapter 2. Keep your fingers in Matthew 12. 
We used to do this when I was a kid all the time. You know, we'd actually look in the Bible uh, instead of read it on a screen. So we're going to go old school here for a minute. And we're going to go back to Hebrews chapter uh, 2. And we're going to look at verses 14 and 15 particularly. It says, Since then the children share in flesh and blood. I'm in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. He himself, that is Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might do what? Render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus has the power, and he demonstrated his power over Satan to cure this man and deliver him from the demons, but also to cure him from his disease, just as a demonstration that he ultimately has control over the one who has power over sin, which is the ultimate consequence was his death. And Jesus says, I, I, can, I can handle that too. I can deliver you from that. Now, when we read this and when we hear it, how do we respond to it? That Jesus has this power over the enemy. Well, I'm just going to throw out a few possible responses. For some, it's a yawner. Apathetic. Don't care what the Bible says about Jesus and what Jesus can do. For other people, they're like, wow, that's pretty impressive, but it's not going to change my life. I'm amazed, but I'm not changed, okay? And other people are antagonistic. Now, this is what we're going to find out the, the Pharisees were. They were they're antagonistic about it. No, other people are like, <clears throat> yep, that's the guy. <laughs> I really believe it. I accept it. And I embrace it. And the question I have for all of us, whether you're online or here in person, is do any of those responses, responses fit you? Are you apathetic? You're like, you're amazed, but, well, you know, it's, it's explainable or I can explain it away. Or maybe you're antagonistic. Yeah, it's, it's not really that big a deal. Or maybe you are accepting of it. I don't know. Just take note of that as we march through the text. Which, which one is you? I hope... My prayer this morning would be that you would be convicted that Jesus really is the one who has power over sin, over Satan, over death, and over hell, and that you would come to repent, turn from your sins, and embrace him as your Savior. And if you know him as Christ, as Savior, I pray that for me, as I read it, and as you read it, I hope and pray that we would become more comforted and encouraged and resting in the fact that he has the one, is the one who can give us power over not only the presence of sin, Ultimately, but all the power of sin in our life right now and the penalty for sin, which is death. Secondly, we see, the second stage is that our Lord was wrongly accused of being the enemy. He proved he had victory over the enemy, and now he's wrongly accused of being the enemy. And the text reveals two different responses in Matthew chapter 12, two different reactions to his healing activity. And the first is this, the, the, the people actually celebrated his work as messianic, as being that of the Messiah. Notice in verse 23, it says, And all the multitude were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? They were amazed, and, and they were wanting an explanation. And so they kind of went like, well, this is so miraculous. Could it be that he is the, the Messiah? And the term son of David is a clearly, uh, clearly a reference to the promised Messiah in the Old Testament based upon a couple of prophetic passages. And you may be familiar with them, but in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, 
that he will uh, rule over the throne of his father David. It's the passage, you know, we quote at Christmas time. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And on his throne, on the throne of his father David, he will reign forever. And then Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, which refers to him as the root of Jesse. Okay. So connecting this promised Messiah as the son of David. So then they're saying, son of David. Well, is this the guy? Maybe. Could this man really be the son of David, our Messiah? I debated a little bit about whether to do this or not, but I'm going to try it, okay? So my sister was, uh, my, my younger sister, I have two sisters, my younger sister was in the dental office one time, and uh, actually she went in, I think, I don't know whether it was out in the lobby, I think it was in, well, she was in the exam room, but she was there, and they had a magazine. And the magazine had a picture of Taylor Lautner. Okay, now, he, I, I don't really know too much about this, but at the time, uh, he was a big deal, okay? So he was kind of a teenage heartthrob guy and all this sort of stuff, and uh, he, he was on some of these, I would never watch whatever shows he was on, but they were kind of silly. But my sister said to the dental assistant, said, well, that's a, really neat, that's a really neat picture of my nephew. And the guy, no. And so my sister got out a picture of, my, uh, of our son and, uh, and said, well, this, that's not the picture she showed him showed the gal, but uh, it, was, it was, you know, there's a likeness, there's a resemblance, you know, and, if, and the picture that she showed this dental assistant was even more strikingly resembling. Could it really be? No, it wasn't. But in this case, in Matthew chapter 12, could it really be that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of David? Absolutely, it really could be that he is the Messiah. The people were perplexed. Could he be the guy? So that was their response. Now look at the Pharisees. Absolutely contrasted with the people. So the people celebrated Jesus' work as messianic, whereas the Pharisees condemned Jesus' work as demonic. Demonic. But when the Pharisees heard it, this is verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, what did they hear? Well, they heard probably that Jesus had healed somebody, but more importantly, they had heard that the people were saying, could this be the son of David? <laughs> and when they heard it, what did they do? They said, this man casts out demons by the ruler of, by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, which I always love it when the Bible defines the term, okay? So what does Beelzebul mean? <laughs> it means ruler of the demons, because that's what the Bible says it means, okay? It makes it easy for us. Rather than seeing Jesus as messianic, the Pharisees, the religious establishment, saw him as demonic. Notice a couple of facts about this. First of all, they never denied the miracle. The Pharisees never denied that the demon had been cast out of the person. Okay, They couldn't deny it. I wonder if any of you are familiar with a guy by the name of Jan Balsrud. Okay, Jan Balsrud. <laughs> Up until recently, I'd never heard of the guy. Okay, he was a Norwegian um, resistance fighter in World War II. Because I didn't realize this either, but World War II, Norway was overthrow, overrun by the by the, uh, the the Nazis, 
And the story of this man's life is fascinating. He was sent on a mission, uh, a resistance mission. They were supposed to uh, sneak in as fishermen and blow up some uh, ammunition sites and maybe some strategic sites that the Nazis had control of. And during the initial phase of it, everyone was either captured or killed except for him. And he was running away. And as he ran away, he was shot in the foot by a Nazi as they pursued him. And then, the, then he was fleeing from the Nazis trying to get from Norway, where he was, into, into uh, Sweden, which was a neutral country at the time. And here's what happened. His story, his miraculous story is unbelievable, but it's undeniable. I told you he was shot in the foot as he was escaping. And then what he did was he swam across a fjord in Norway in the wintertime, in, the, uh, in sub-freezing temperatures, okay? He got to the other side. He, was, he found a, a cabin. Some people took him in, and uh, this, he was hidden by different people. At one point, he was uh, holed up in a cabin by himself. He ended up having to amputate, self-amputate uh, his toe to keep the gangrene from spreading, he lived for 10 days under a rock out in the open, frigid temperatures of Norway in the wintertime in nothing but a sleeping bag, and people would bring him sustenance, which was barely enough. He was emaciated, and he was sick and ill, and then he was finally strapped to a sled and, and carried, drugged by a reindeer, across Norway and into Sweden. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But undeniable because you saw his picture. He lived to tell about it and everybody knew about him. And if you mention his name in Norway, he's a national hero. Okay? The multitude who had witnessed Jesus do this miracle kept the Pharisees from denying it. They couldn't deny it, so what did they do? They had to discredit it. So they discredited his miracle. The Pharisees had their mind made up, they didn't want confused with the facts. See? Got my mind made up, don't confuse these, little, these pesky little things, facts are, pesky, you know. They're hard to deny. And so, And they certainly didn't want anybody else confused by the facts. Confused, I say, quote unquote. We aren't going to be confused, and we don't want anybody else confused. And so entrenched in their hatred for Jesus that they attributed, they made the most slanderous statement ever possible against Jesus. This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, the contrast couldn't be starker, right? Celebrate his work as messianic or condemn his work as demonic. Saying that the son of David is really the deceiver? Can't be, can't be. One, one is true, one's not, Right? Unfortunately, we live in a culture in which the reaction to Jesus is often one of those two extremes. It's either he is the hero and we celebrate him, or he is to be condemned as the enemy. I was thinking the other day, I read an article, John MacArthur's pastor, Grace Community Church out in Southern California, was celebrating how God had been, during these pandemic times, when they were still meeting in person uh, the God was working and people were coming to faith in Christ and they were having baptisms and they were celebrating Jesus. At the same time, the state of California 
is condemning worship in houses of worship and actually forbidding worship in houses of worship because this Jesus guy must not be all that big of a deal. But if you want to go to the restaurant, that's important. You're good to go there. But you can't go in to worship this Jesus guy. Think about it. In our culture, in this day and age, and we're going to get to it in Matthew chapter 19, but in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus affirms the gender binary. And that's just uh, hip language for saying uh, God made men and women, okay? Uh, binary means two, okay? I think. Uh, mathematicians, two? Binaries, two? Yeah, okay. Got to get this straight. So anyhow, he affirms the gender binary, and he also defines marriage as the union of one man and one woman for life in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. And for some people, that's celebrated. This Jesus is the guy. But in a vast and increasing number of people in our culture, it's condemned as hate speech or some such stuff. This Jesus is a divisive character, and we need clarification. And so, yes, he demonstrates his power over the enemy, but he's accused of being the enemy. And now the last section of this, last few verses of this section, the Lord rebukes the true enemy. He said, okay, it's enough of this. Going back and forth, I'm going to settle the issue. And we see in verses 25 through 30 that it says that in verse 25, Jesus, and knowing their thoughts, he said to them, amazing. He's just demonstrated his omnipotence by casting out the demon and healing the guy. And now he manifests his omniscience. He knew their thoughts. That's kind of scary. He knew their thoughts. And now we observe that Jesus refutes their erroneous claim against him. And he does this on several fronts. And I'm going to mention, I don't know how many numbers there are because I put them in letters, okay? And I'm not that good with math and changing numbers to letters, but I think it goes to E, okay? So A through E. Here we go. First of all, Jesus refutes their claim as irrational. And now notice how he does this. We see, first of all, an observation, verse 25. He knew their thoughts, and so here's his response. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any kingdom, any city, any house divided against itself will not stand, okay? He shows how society unravels when there's division. I mean, it's just a natural consequence. There's an unraveling of what's normal if you have divisions in these things. No kingdom, no city, no house can stand if it's divided. And you know, probably, if you have a little bit of American history, where this was most quoted or the most notable quote of this Jesus statement, a house divided against itself will not stand. Who made that quote? This guy, Abraham Lincoln. No, Jesus said it. Abraham Lincoln just quoted it when he was trying and made this application of this passage to the prospect of civil war. He said this will divide the country. Okay? Nation divided cannot stand. So then Jesus made the observation, then he makes the application. What's good for, the, for a kingdom, what's good for a house, a city, and what's good for a house is also true for the kingdom of, of Satan, Satan's kingdom. Satan is not going to be exempt. His economy will fall if it's divided against itself. And it, he said this in it, verse 26. And if Satan casts out Satan, 
he is divided against himself. How then shall this kingdom stand? Answer, it can't. He can't. It can't. Paul manifests this principle in Acts chapter 23. Paul's being brought up on charges in Acts 23, and you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees there, and then Paul, the genius that he was, he said to this group, he says, I'm on trial today for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Well, for us, we might not understand it, but see, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection, and the Pharisees did believe in a resurrection. So as soon as he said that, he had them divided, and they didn't stand. <laughs> and they, they, couldn't, they couldn't make heads or tails of it. Jesus argues that Satan, to cast out Satan, for Satan to cast out Satan is, is totally irrational because it's, it's self-destructive. Why would Satan turn on himself? He's not going to do that. Secondly, Jesus refutes the claim as prejudicial in verse 20. 20 28, no, 26, 27, I'll get it. And if I say, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Sons, i.e. disciples. If I'm casting out by Beelzebul, then how are these guys casting them out? It doesn't really make sense. What he's saying, Jesus is saying, is you're being, you're being prejudicial against me. See, the Pharisees were slandering Jesus for the very thing that they supported their own disciples for doing. Casting out demons. So there's inconsistency. Uh, it's, it's a known fact, so I'm not trying to make any political statements here, but, the, but Twitter and Facebook and other social media sites have been throttling back conservative uh, voices. You know, if a conservative will criticize someone who uh, uh, has a different perspective, then Facebook and Twitter are like, you know, cutting them off and not letting them speak. But, they, but that doesn't go the other way around. So if the other voices are speaking out against the conservatives, the moral and, and, and political conservatives, doesn't go that way. Well, that's an inconsistency. It's a hypocrisy. Jesus was rejected because of prejudice, not because of the evidence, okay? I mean, he exposed their wickedness. And men love darkness rather than light because their, their deeds are evil. And then he says at the end of verse 27, consequently, as a result, the result of this is that they, that is your sons, your disciples who are casting out demons, they'll be your judges. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think, uh, I think what it means that is if... if the sons of the Pharisees cast out demons by Beelzebub and the Pharisees are supporting it, then both groups are condemned because they're doing what's evil. But if the Pharisees' sons, disciples, cast out demons by the Spirit of God, well then Jesus is casting out demons by the Spirit of God because that's the only way you cast out demons. And then the Pharisees Accusation against Jesus is unfounded, can't stand. So they're being prejudicial, okay? Thirdly, Jesus refutes the claim as a denial. In verse 28, Jesus says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, which is exactly what he's claiming he's doing, Okay, don't, let's don't make any mistake about it. That's exactly what he's claiming that I'm doing. I'm casting out demons. But if I do that, then guess what? 
The kingdom of God is upon you. It's here. Jesus declared that the real power behind his work is the Spirit of God. Now, if you have your Bible, you have your device, look up at chapter 12, verse 18. What was the prophecy in Isaiah that Jesus was fulfilling? That I'll put my Spirit upon him. And if my Spirit, God's Spirit, is upon this God-man, Jesus, then what he does is wrought of the Spirit of God. And that's exactly what Jesus is claiming. The culmination of God's glorious rule and reign is yet to come, okay? But there is a present aspect of the kingdom. And as Dr. Turner says in, in his commentary in Matthew, he says, the Spirit-empowered miracles performed by Jesus declared that the saving power of God's kingdom has arrived. Okay? God's kingdom rule, his rule had arrived with the person and the work of Jesus. And it's always was with him while he was here. And it's present now because the power to save is present through the Spirit's work as God and Christ reigns in heaven. He rules, Christ rules in the hearts of believers, and he rules over this world seeking to bring people to faith in himself. And then I love what, uh, you know, the king is in place, okay? He came, and he's in place. And, and he was ruling right then, but the Pharisees weren't buying it. They were, they were denying it, okay? And they were rejecting it. But if we looked at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and you can see it on the screen. Now, after John was taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And what is the response that the presence of the kingdom is here? Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus, I think, it's hard to argue that he's not saying this to the, to the Pharisees. Kingdom's here. You need to repent and believe. If I do this by the Spirit of God, which is exactly what I'm doing, so you need to repent and believe. But they had their minds made up. They didn't want to confuse with the facts. Those pesky little things. Don't want that. I ask us, are we denying that Jesus is the King? Are you denying that he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world, the one who came into this world to die for our sins so that if we would turn from our sins and repent of those sins and trust in him, we would be rescued and saved from condemnation, eternal damnation, and have purpose and meaning in life? Are you denying it or are you accepting it? That's the question. Ready to return. Fourthly, Jesus refutes the claim as impossible. Verse 29. Or how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds a strong man and then he will plunder his house? Makes sense. You don't just walk in and, and take stuff from people in a strong man's house unless you're stronger than the strong man. Now get this. Jesus was proclaiming, preaching, and he was demonstrating his power over Satan. He was intruding into Satan, the powerful man's place of business, so to speak. Okay, He was intruding. And his miraculous demonstrations, he, an intrusion. You have your Bibles, look over at Matthew chapter 11, uh, verse 1. And it came about that when Jesus had finished giving instructions 
to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and to preach in the cities. Now verse 5, and he said, the, you, you tell John the Baptist, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and, uh, and the deaf hear. And he keeps going on and on. We saw in chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, that he is ruler, Lord of the Sabbath. His teaching and his miraculous demonstrations were an intrusion into Satan's realm, and Satan didn't like it. And he couldn't get into Satan's realm unless he was more powerful than Satan, the strong man. The kingdom was present and it was advancing into the domain of Satan. And Satan didn't like it. You know, the strong man won't willingly concede, right? Okay, some of us saw with great distress this last summer, the looting and the rioting and the, the things that were taking place on the streets. Now, I'll tell you, folks, that people didn't walk into those stores, they didn't walk into people's houses until they had overcome the police, the store owners, and uh, homeowners. They had to have more power. They had more power than those people, or they wouldn't have been able to do what they did. They wouldn't have been able to pillage and plunder. And Jesus just said, look, it's impossible for me to have power over this strong man unless I'm stronger than him, okay? And he, in fact, is stronger than him, all right? Jesus doesn't collaborate with the enemy. He controls the enemy. He's not a servant of Satan. He's superior to Satan. He's in charge. And I think if we think about it, I mean, think about this. It's kind of like Jesus asking, have I not sufficiently demonstrated through overcoming disease? Okay, you go to Matthew chapter 8, verse 3. There's leprosy there, okay? Uh, disability which is paralysis, Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 10. Through casting out of demons, and we see this in Matthew chapter 9, 33. We see it in Matthew chapter 12 and other places. And raising the dead. He had raised the dead, Matthew chapter 9. Haven't I not demonstrated through all these things that I am more powerful than the enemy? I'm not a co-conspirator with the enemy. I'm more powerful than the enemy. I'm Stronger than him. And then Jesus will, as we see, ultimately deal the most decisive blow to the enemy when he went to the cross and they arose from the dead. Okay? So right now, uh, he, and, and, he, and when he did that, he still left Satan with his influence. Satan still has influence. But he will ultimately be incapacitated. That's Revelation chapter 20. He's going to be incapacitated. But in the meantime, we have to deal with it. And so the question for me to ask you is, do you share in the victory that we have in Jesus, that he bought for us at the cross? Because all of us are born fighting God or playing God. I know what God wants, and I'm not going there. That's fighting God. Or playing God. I'm doing well on my own, God. Just leave me alone, thanks. It's rebellion against God. And because of our rebellion, we deserve in eternity. We deserve his wrath, eternity apart from God in, in hell. But Christ came, the King, the Messiah, the King of Israel, Lord of the nations, and died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God that we deserve so that all who would put their faith or their trust in him would be forgiven, not subject to the wrath, and given the promise of eternal life, which begins the moment we trust Christ and continues on for eternity with power to live with purpose now. That's the purpose. That's the, God. That's the good news. He says you must repent and believe. So do you repent and do you believe? 
And if you do, great. If you don't now, do it. It's the days that now. That's what he's saying to the Pharisees. Repent and believe in the gospel. And every one of us who knows Christ can rejoice that we have this power of Christ in us. Resurrection power to overcome sin in our daily experience and ultimately to join him in glory. There's one more front on which Jesus confronts this heresy. In verse 30, Jesus declares neutrality towards him, himself, is impossible. Verse 30, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. It's kind of a scary verse, actually. Because he basically says there are two kinds of people in the world. The with Jesus people and the against Jesus people. You're either with me or you're against me. I mean, in the last presidential election, if you weren't for a candidate, you were against them. I mean, that's the logic here. There were two categories of people, for and against. If, you're, if we're not with Jesus, we're against him. And the, the really interesting thing is you don't have to be actively opposing Jesus to be against him. You just have to be not with him if I'm understanding the text correct, correctly. There was a, a prayer offered at the uh, inauguration uh, of, uh, on, on January, in January of 2021, at this last inauguration. And something, you know, praying to some inanimate something or other, it was just like this convoluted prayer. It sounded really good until it got to the end in the name of something or something or something. It was really obscure, and it's like, where, where is Jesus in this? It was completely absent from that prayer. And I'm not, I didn't watch the inauguration, so I don't know all the details of whatever happened. Maybe Jesus was mentioned, but he seemed to be rather absent from what I've heard. With Christ means to trust him, to be in his camp. It means to be in relationship with him. We're either in relationship with him through faith in his death on the cross as the payment for our sins, or we're not. And I don't say that uh, to, to be mean. I mean, this is God's word. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a gifted teacher. He wasn't just a great prophet. He was the Son of God, and he is the Son of God the Savior of the world. And to see him as any other is to be against him. Whose side are you on? You feeling blessed but really not believing in Jesus? And you're curious about Jesus but you're not really committed to Christ? Maybe you're just required to be here, <laughs> you know. I'm just one of those required people, but I'm not really interested in this Jesus guy. Well, I mean, at least be honest, right? Maybe you're a spiritual person, but you're not really surrendered to him as Lord. I mean, there's people inside and outside the church that are all into religion. 
They don't know anything about a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, and they're going to hell. And I was sad to, to see and read about what took place in the National Cathedral, uh, just the, the absolute, where's Jesus? In the National Cathedral, and you know, I learned this, the National Cathedral is the National Cathedral. It was constructed with tax dollars. Because our founding fathers realized the importance of worshiping God. Now tell me they believed in what we are now told is the separation of church and state. That's a bunch of garbage because they believed the need to depend upon Almighty God. They wanted the state to be free from influencing religion, not religion from influencing the state. I don't know where you're at this morning, but in this text, Jesus makes it clear, you're either with me or you're against me. And I hope and I pray that you're with him, that you are in a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, and if you aren't, then Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, now is the day of salvation. Acknowledge before God in prayer. Yeah, Lord, I've been kind of, I've known about this stuff. I kind of know about, I've known about God. That's where I was when I was 13 years old. I'd heard all about Jesus. I knew that he, I could even say he, Jesus was the Savior of the world. But I didn't know that he died on the cross to pay the debt that I deserved and that I had to trust in what he did as the payment I deserved and turn from my sin and follow him in relationship with him until the preacher told me that's what the bible says for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life steve do you believe oh i don't think so well you can if you will acknowledge what jesus did and trust him as your savior and believe it truly in your heart you'll be a child of god that's what i'm saying you need to do if you have never done it and if you have Rejoice and be glad and praise God for what he's done. Am I serving this king as I should? I have received him, but now am I experiencing the victory that I have? He has power over sin and Satan. Do I, because I'm trusting and relying upon him, am I having victory over jealousy and pride and selfishness and the things that, that plague me and my overly critical spirit? You know, I said earlier that Jesus gained the ultimate victory over Satan and the enemy when he died on the cross. And as, as we uh, take the elements that are symbols of his, his body broken and his blood shed, we are celebrating the victory that Jesus had and it made possible for us to be victors too if we put our trust or our faith in him. And so as you take a few moments just to examine your heart, and acknowledge and appreciate the forgiveness that's available through what Christ did on the cross. And then take the bread, that little wafer thing, and, and drink the juice as a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, that Jesus is our powerful Messiah King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he's not serving Satan, what blasphemy that we'll find out next week is, is blasphemy that's deserving of condemnation. 
but he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. I pray that he might be Lord of our lives and that each of us personally would be trusting in his death as the payment for our sin, that we would be understand that we are forgiven and eternally his children in a blessed relationship. I ask that you would help us as we reflect and take these elements to rejoice as we reflect and remember what it cost. In Jesus' name we pray.